You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. So I've shared a few stories with you all before of my time as a missionary in the Middle East, Uh, but I want to take the opportunity to share with you all another story this morning. Um, I'm often asked the question, of if anyone ever came to faith while I was overseas. Obviously, as a missionary, I had ample opportunity to share the gospel, but did anyone ever believe? And I'll never know the full answer to that question, this side of eternity, but I do know with certainty that there was at least one Uh, Just for the sake of his privacy and and safety, I'm just going to call him Abdu. Uh, But Abdu was a Muslim who ran this little grocery stand in the country of Yemen. And he mainly just sold coffee beans and raisins. He didn't really have a whole lot there. Uh, And I, I bought from him on a regular basis, but I never really knew him I'd buy a pound or two of coffee beans, uh, thank him, and then honestly, I would never see him or even think about him again until I ran out of coffee. Uh, But one day, my roommate was at Abdu's stand. He was buying some raisins, and Abdu asked him a question. He asked if he was a Christian, and my roommate, of course, said yes, and Abdu said, well... I wasn't sure if you two were Christian, uh, but you're white, so I just kind of assumed. Uh, And Abdu said he wanted to tell my roommate and I a story, so he came back to our apartment. And he told us that over the course of the last six months to a year, uh, he had been having these reoccurring dreams where he would see this figure clothed in bright light, and he would ask Abdu to follow him. That's all he would say. This, this figure was kind of like a broken record and would just say, follow me, follow me. And, and Abdu said that somehow he knew that this man in his dream was the prophet that the Muslims call Isa, but as we know as Jesus. And and Abdu had all sorts of questions for Jesus. And in his dream, he would ask him why he appeared to Abdu instead of Muhammad, since Abdu was a Muslim. And he would ask him, out of all the people that he could have appeared to, why exactly would he appear specifically to Abdu instead of somebody else? And he said that Jesus would never answer any of his questions He would simply repeat himself again and again, just saying, follow me. And Abdu said he he tried to speak to the leaders of his mosque, but they just told him that obviously this dream must be from Satan. Uh, So they, they kicked him out of the mosque and told him not to come back until he stopped having these dreams. And so for months, Abdu had had no one to help explain what any of all of this this meant. And he said he wanted to speak to a Christian to see if maybe they would have an answer. 
but he'd never met a Christian in his life until one day we started showing up at his stand. And so my roommate and I, and our terrible attempts at Arabic, uh, we tried to communicate the gospel to Abdu, walking him through the life of Jesus, telling him of the significance of his death, burial, and resurrection. And we pointed him to different verses in the Arabic copy of the Bible that we had. And I, I remember at the very end, once we had said all of this to Abdu, we asked him what was going to be his response. Jesus had asked him to follow him. So what was he going to do? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, oh, I already decided months ago to follow Jesus. I mean, if he appeared to me in a dream just to tell me to be his follower, then who am I to tell him no? So I've already committed to follow him. I just needed someone to come and tell me what it means to follow him. And that's not at all what I expected Abdu to say. I mean, I figured he'd ask for a copy of the Bible. Uh, maybe he'd want to study it for himself and compare it to his Quran. I figured he'd want to ask all sorts of theological questions about who Jesus was. And then maybe after he understood more about who Jesus was, then maybe he would make a commitment to follow him. But that's not how it happened. And that raises such an interesting question. What exactly do you need to know about Jesus in order to follow Jesus? Or if you're already a follower of Jesus, what do you need to know in order to follow him closer? You know, what are those essential ingredients? Is it your commitment and your resolve to follow Jesus that will lead you to a greater understanding of who he is? Or is it a deeper understanding of Jesus that will actually lead you to having a deeper commitment to him? It's kind of like that chicken or the egg question, which comes first? And that's the issue we're going to see addressed this morning in our passage. Now, Peter thinks he has come to a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And he thinks he is firmly committed to Jesus's cause. But as we study this text, we'll see whether or not Peter is right. Well, we'll see exactly where Peter is at on his journey of faith. And if he really understands what it means to follow Jesus. So let me read our text. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. So our text begins with Jesus and his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is a region located uh, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's modern-day Syria. And this is pretty far away from where most of Jesus' ministry has taken place. And he came here not to perform any mass feedings or any great miracles like he has been doing, but rather in order to get away for a bit with his disciples. Because this will be Jesus' last reprieve before he begins his journey towards Jerusalem to head to the cross. This is the last moment of calm before the storm. After Mark chapter 8, every step that Jesus takes will be a step closer to his own death. So while he's on this retreat, he takes the opportunity to ask his disciples a question. Who do you, or who do people, say I am? There's obviously a lot of responses to that question. Uh, Some think that Jesus is John the Baptist, come back to life. Uh, Others think that he's, you know, one of the prophets of old, like Elijah, But then Jesus makes the question more personal. And after his disciples' initial response, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first one to respond in verse 29, saying, you are the Christ. And we do just need to take a moment to celebrate Peter's acknowledgement. Because it has been a long time coming. You can look all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Peter was first introduced to Jesus. His brother Andrew came running up to Peter and he said in John chapter 1 verse 41, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. But John chapter 1 took place two years before this conversation here in Mark chapter 8. And not once over the course of these eight chapters has Peter ever acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah or the Christ. I mean, Peter has miraculously seen Jesus feed uh, the multitudes on two separate occasions, in fact, Uh, He's seen Jesus walk on water. Uh, He's seen too many people to count who have been healed by Jesus' touch. And he's even seen the dead brought back to life. And it took all of those miraculous signs spread out over the course of two years for Peter to say and to come to the conclusion that 
Maybe there, there just might be something special about this Jesus guy after all. Maybe he actually is the Christ. But what do the words Messiah or Christ uh, even mean? I mean, when Peter finally does acknowledge Jesus saying, you are the Christ, who is he actually saying Jesus is? Well, that word Messiah, it's the Hebrew word that means the anointed one. And the word Christ is just the Greek translation of that same word. I mean, sometimes we refer to Jesus Christ almost as though we're, we're calling uh, Jesus by his last name. We say that, that Christ is like his last name, but it's not. We're literally saying Jesus, the anointed one. But what does it even mean to say that he's the anointed one? Well, if you really want an answer to that, we would need to read the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, but I'm guessing we don't have time for that this morning. Uh, so let me look at a couple of different passages from the Old Testament with you. These were written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, and all of these point to the eventual arrival of one who would be anointed and chosen by God to save his people. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, even after Satan in the form of a serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin, the Lord predicted all the way back in the beginning of the Old Testament that one day he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent because of what he did. Or you could go to a passage like Isaiah 61, which speaks of one who will come to liberate the captives and to free those who have been bound in prison and in whom will be everlasting joy. Or you could go to a book like Micah, to chapter 5, which says that one day there will be a man born in Bethlehem who will come to rule over Israel and bring peace. And those are just a small fraction of the examples that you could use in the Old Testament, but that's who the Messiah was meant to be an anointed one who would come to crush the head of Satan, who would free the captives, who would rule over God's chosen people and usher in everlasting joy and peace. And that's who Peter acknowledges Jesus to be. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, or if you want to understand him at a deeper level, the first requirement is that you, like Peter, must understand Jesus to be the Messiah. He's the Christ. If you read the account of this story uh, in the book of Matthew, after Peter makes this proclamation about Jesus, uh, you see Jesus' response to Peter. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you see that you can't even take this first step of acknowledging Jesus as the anointed one without the Lord first revealing it to you. This isn't something that flesh and blood, uh, that in your flesh and blood you can come to discover on your own. I mean, you can study and read about Jesus all you want, but you will never see who he is until God intervenes in your life and opens up your eyes and opens up your ears and reveals himself to you. So if you're coming to that point in your life, or you can look back to that point in your life where you have seen Jesus as the Messiah who came to save you from your sin, then praise God because that means that it was God who revealed that truth to you. That's not something that you could ever come to understand on your own. But Jesus says that upon the bedrock foundation of that truth, of that gospel, that good news of understanding Jesus as Savior who came to set the captives free, upon that truth, his church will be built. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Coming to understand Jesus as the Messiah is like watching someone unleash an unstoppable force. It's like seeing a lion let out of its cage Nothing can or will prevail against it. I mean, we often uh, look at the broken world around us, and sometimes it, it seems like hell has the upper hand. The forces of evil are winning. Our society is falling uh, deeper into this pit of immorality. But when you think about the gates of hell, what, what is a gate. Uh, it's not an offensive weapon, but rather a defensive tool designed to keep you from breaking in. No soldier who knew what he was doing has ever used a gate as a weapon on the battlefield. You don't unsheath your gate from your belt and start swinging it around. You, you never hear anyone say that they're being held hostage at gate points. Hell was never meant to have the upper hand in the fight over our world. Those gates were meant to keep those already bound and shackled by their sin trapped inside and the forces of heaven kept outside. But Jesus says that once you understand him to be the Messiah, those gates don't stand a chance. That phrase, the gates of hell, um, it's used elsewhere in Scripture as a metaphor that represents death. And Jesus wants Peter and the disciples to know that because he came into the world as the Messiah, death will soon be defeated. It will soon be given an eviction notice because it will no longer have a place among God's people. Though you and I may still physically pass away, that eternal death, which could separate you from God because of your sin, 
will no longer be in the picture. The bars of those gates will be pried wide open. And all of those who come to know Jesus as their Messiah and Savior will have the opportunity to walk right through those gates. From those gates, you can spring forward and be reunited with God, but you have to first come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So verse 29, finally, Peter acknowledges who Jesus is. He's the anointed one. But that doesn't fully answer our question of what do you need to know about Jesus in order to follow him? Because Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah. But if you go on to verses 31 through 33, you see that Peter doesn't fully understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus takes this opportunity after Peter makes this proclamation. He he takes the opportunity to teach the disciples plainly uh, what's going to happen to him in the coming days. He teaches them that the Son of Man, which is just a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and and after three days rise again. But when Peter hears all of this, what does he do? We're told that Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. And in Matthew's account of this story, he adds that Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So then, of course, it's Jesus' turn to then rebuke Peter for his rebuke. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. You know you have done something wrong when someone looks at you and calls you Satan to your face. Uh, But Jesus' rebuke shows that while Peter understands that Jesus is the anointed one, He doesn't actually understand what it means to be the anointed one. Those passages in the Old Testament that I mentioned earlier that pointed to that anointed one that would one day come to earth also pointed to the reality that that anointed one must suffer and die on our behalf. Um, Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6, for example, says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds, we are healed. Centuries before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah spoke of what the Messiah's arrival would mean. Peter shouldn't have even needed to hear Jesus teach about his upcoming crucifixion. All Peter had to do was open up the scroll of Isaiah and he could see for himself what would happen. Jesus is going to be rejected by the Jewish establishment. He's going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. The Romans are going to hang him on a cross of wood and leave him there to die. But his hands won't be pierced 
because of anything Jesus did wrong. He's going to be nailed to the tree because of your transgressions, because of my sin. He's going to be crushed on that cross under the weight of God's wrath, not because of anything that he did, but rather because of our iniquities. As Paul will later write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made he to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so you can't just understand that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It means that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He became more like us so that we might finally be able to become more like him. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you begin to to read more about him in scripture, you you might be tempted to think of Jesus uh, just as another great example of a good moral teacher. And he was a great moral teacher, but if that's all you see Jesus as, you're not seeing the real Jesus. You've just created for yourself a man-made Messiah, Messiah, and you're not seeing the one that was sent from God the Father. If Jesus is just a great philosopher to you, you're not seeing the real Jesus. If he's just another social justice advocate, You don't understand his role as the Messiah. Even those who have been followers of Jesus for years can still see Jesus as more of a sidekick than as of their savior. He's just there to help you in times of need, when you just need a little extra encouragement or just a a bit of a boost. But if that is all Jesus is to you, then you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather the things of man. And though you may claim to be on team Jesus, you're really still just siding with Satan. So so back to our original question. What exactly do you need to know about Jesus in order to follow Jesus? Or if you're already a committed Christian and you want to know Jesus on a deeper level, what are those key ingredients that you must understand? Well, if Abdu or if Peter's example teach you anything, it's that you certainly don't have to understand everything about Jesus. In fact, in this life, it's not even possible to understand everything there is to know about Jesus. His wisdom is too deep. His love is too vast to ever fully comprehend. Uh, Getting to know Jesus is like trying to drink in the ocean through a straw. It's going to take you a while to take it all in. But you must know that Jesus cannot be understood apart from his death, burial, and resurrection. And that removing the resurrection means that you'll misunderstand the Messiah. Removing the resurrection means you'll misunderstand the Messiah. 
You cannot have one without the other. If you have a Christ without a cross, then you'll be left with one who is no Christ at all. And we would have no reason to be gathered here to celebrate Easter and the redemption that comes with his resurrection. And the more you're convicted by this reality, the more those convictions will drive you to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And the more you understand Jesus, the deeper your convictions will become. And so that cycle will continue again and again. But behind both your convictions and your understanding of Jesus needs to be first and foremost that bedrock foundation of his gospel. When Peter first heard this news taught by Jesus, he rebuked Jesus because he thought that this was terribly bad news. But Peter will soon come to discover that this is actually the best news there could possibly ever be. And that should be true for you and I this morning as well. Not just on Easter, but on every day. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what it means for us. Thank you for coming on a rescue run to earth to save us even when we couldn't save ourselves. Thank you for the redemption that your resurrection represents. And may we celebrate this truth now and always, Father, every day that we are alive. I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.